The circumstance surrounding the writing of 1984, making a haunting narrative that helps to explain the bleakness of Orwell's dystopia. Here was an English writer, desperately sick, grappling along with the demons of his imagination in a bleak Scottish outpost and the desolate aftermath of the Second World War. The idea for 1984, alternatively, the last man in Europe, had been incubated in Orwell's mind since the Spanish Civil War. Thank you once again for being a listener to With Just a Kiss. I look forward to our next time. The following clip, George Orwell, A Life in Pictures, a BBC documentary, is available for the full version on YouTube. The link is in my bio. Please take an opportunity to view the entire piece. Here is a short clip. Towards the end of his career, he penned the confessional essay, Why I Write. All writers are vain, selfish, and lazy. And at the bottom of their motives, there lies a mystery. 1984, uh, with its thought police, Room 101, and Big Brother, has given us a language with which we can defy oppression. What demon drove you to dream up 1984? I do not think one can assess a writer's motives without knowing something of his early development. His subject matter will be determined by the age in which he lives. But before he ever begins to write, he will have acquired an emotional attitude from which he will never completely escape. The party member, the patriot, and the inner party member have all had the conscience of repelling Big Brother out of their minds. The destruction, confession, and brainwashing reaches every type of man with a story, even to the bitter end. Controlling hatred has always been proven useless. The fall of Nazi Germany and USSR is led by the conscious mind who believe in love, and all men are born free to think. Reality control is powerful against enemies, but its creator can never find a way to avoid systematic error. Book 1, Chapter 5. Winston is in the canteen for lunch, and he's talking to Simi, a linguist, who's working on the 11th edition of Newspeak Dictionary. Simi is an example of an ideology orthodox individual. He's considered a threat to the totalitarian regime because of his intelligence. This suggests that he may possibly become very dangerous in the future. Orwell views the impoverishment of vocabulary as a primary tool of totalitarian regimes. And so seems in this destruction of words is his delight and it's his intended aspect that Orwell shares that makes it appalling. Winston sees seem 
as uh, despite uh, political orthodoxy as a possible threat by the thought police because he's just simply too intelligent. The two are drinking victory gin and discussing the 11th edition of the dictionary and how it is much more compressed and Simi had believes that these destruction of words is a beautiful thing. He says enthusiastically that the thought crime will eventually be impossible because there will be no words with which to express disloyal thoughts. To know and not to know. To be conscious of complete truthfulness while telling carefully constructed lies. To hold simultaneously two opinions which cancel out, knowing them to be contradictory and believing in both of them. To use logic against logic. To repudiate morality while laying claim to it. To believe that democracy was impossible and that the party was the guardian of democracy. To forget whatever it was necessary to forget, then to draw it back into memory again at the moment when it was needed, and then promptly to forget it again, and above all, to apply the same process to the process itself. That was the ultimate, subtly, consciously, to induce unconsciousness, and then, once again, to become unconscious of the act of hypnosis you had just performed. Even to understand the word doublethink, involved to use of doublethink. Winston becomes aware of the man speaking with a girl with dark hair near him. He's quacking. Simi tells him that this is a word in Newspeak. It's called duckspeak. It refers to a propaganda speech uttered almost unconsciously. Duck speak, the automatic regurgitation of a correct opinion, is the party's ideal and the goal of its efforts to reduce the expression. The range of old speak needs to be no more. Parsons, Winston's neighbor, approaches Simi and Winston and demands a donation for Hate Week. Parsons is an enthusiastic supporter of the party. Winston thinks that it's possible the Parsons will be called out by his own child one day. The telescreen announces that the standard of living in Oceania has gone up by 20% and reports that people are demonstrating in the streets in gratitude to Big Brother for having raised the chocolate ration. Winston is appalled by the whole double think this has made it possible for the people to swallow obvious lies. No one has had enough to eat. There are shortages in clothing and cigarettes. The buildings are ruined and unheated. And the party itself is not even not increasing the ration for chocolate, but has lessened it. Totalitarian regimes require complete obedience to the state and unquestioning support of its doctrines and policies. In order to comply with these requirements, citizens must be able to forget facts when they are in conflict with the party desires them to believe. They absurdly follow suit. Book 1, 
chapter 6, Winston writes in his diary about an encounter he has with a prole prostitute in the basement kitchen, which is considered a minor crime. Disgusted, he considers the party's attitude towards sex, which is that it should only occur between married people for the purpose of procreation, and it should not be pleasurable. It's not until Winston gets to know Julia that he learns how the party has manipulated sexual instincts to serve his political purposes. Winston's own sexual fantasies are overwhelmingly sadistic, showing how repressed sexuality can take the form of violent wishes and taboo behaviors. Because of the party members are not allowed to feel or express desire for each other, the encounters with prostitutes are Winston's only sexual outlet. Desire, too, is a thought crime. Repression. Quote, The aim of the party was not merely to prevent men and women from forming loyalties, which it might not be able to control. Its real undeclared purpose was to remove all pleasure from the sexual act. Not love so much as eroticism was the enemy, inside marriage as well as outside it. All marriages between party members had to be approved by a committee appointed for the purpose, and though the principle was never clearly stated, permission was always refused if the couple concerned gave the impression of being physically attracted to one another. The only recognized purpose of marriage was to beget children for the service of the party. Sexual intercourse was to be looked out as a slightly disgusting minor operation, like having an enema. This, again, was never put into plain words, but in an indirect way, it was rubbed into every party member from childhood onwards. There was even organizations such as Junior Anti-Sex League, which advocated complete celibacy for both sexes. All children were to be begotten by artificial insemination. It fitted with the general ideology of the party. The party was trying to kill the sex instinct, or it could not be killed, than to distort it, dirty it. He did not know why this was so, but it seemed natural that it should be so. And as far as the women were concerned, the party's efforts were largely successful. Quote, he saw himself standing there in the dim lamplight with the smell of bugs and cheap scent in his nostrils, in his heart a feeling of defeat and resentment, which even at that moment was mixed up with the thought of Catherine's white body frozen forever by the hypnotic power of the party. Why did it always have to be like this? Chastity was as deep ingrained in them as the party loyalty. By careful early conditioning, by games in cold water, by the rubbish that was dined into them at school and the spies of the youth league, by lectures, parades, songs, and slogans, the natural feeling had been driven out of them. End quote. He begins to discuss what happens when he goes looking for the proles. Quote, he seemed to breathe again the warm, stuffy odor of the basement kitchen an odor compound of bugs and dirty clothes, and villainous cheap scent, but nevertheless alluring, because no woman of the party ever used scent, or could be imagined as doing so. Only the proles used scent. In his mind, the smell of it was inextricably mixed up with fornication. In Chapter 7, 
Winston continues to write into his diary. He's writing about his belief that the party will be overthrown by the proles. Winston's first statement of belief in the possibility of revolution by the proles is that it's a paradox that the proles cannot rebel until they become conscious and they cannot become conscious until they have rebelled. 85% of the population of Oceania is the proles. The party, however, makes no attempt to indoctrinate them and the promiscuity among them goes unpunished because the party considers them to be too stupid to be dangerous. Winston is viewing a children's textbook and copies out a passage described capitalism. He can't tell how much of the passages actually lies, but he suspects that life in Oceania may have been better before the revolution overthrew the capitalist system. Though the party claims that the standard of living is higher and that the people are happier and live longer. He has a suspicion, though, of the party claims, and Winston makes further efforts to learn the truth about the past. The children's book is just another example of propaganda. Winston recalls finding a photograph, 11 years prior, of three men. The three men were leaders of the revolution who had been exposed as traitors, imprisoned, and then tortured and released, eventually rearrested and vaporized. Winston remembers seeing the three at a bar, and they were weeping sentimentally into the gin. The photograph Winston found proved their innocence and showed that their confessions had in fact been extorted. Winston regrets ever destroying that photo. The memory of it all, he wonders. Winston is mystified by the party's reasons for continuously falsifying the past and horrified that what the party ideology amounts to is an outright denial of external reality. To the party, he realizes common sense is the ultimate hearsay. Instead of going to the community center, Winston wanders through the parole neighborhoods. He's fearful because he knows the party disapproves of own life, the desire of solitude. He kicks a hand in the gutter and he misses a rocket bomb. Winston's empathy for people has disappeared as the party's policy of discouraging emotional bonds between individuals. Winston takes a stroll through the parole streets and envies the lives of the ignorant and the free. He wanders into a pub for beer and strikes up a conversation with an old man about life pre-party. The old man is too incoherent to give a satisfactory answer. Winston passes by a group of proles who are standing outside a pub and they're arguing about the lottery. Winston knows that the prizes are largely imaginary and wonders how they can continue to believe and be taken by it. The lower class or proles are easily distracted by recognizing that they are poor and disenfranchised by activities such as gambling. Winston then passes by the secondhand store in which he bought his diary and chats with the owner. Winston is soon led upstairs to a room in which Mr. Charrington and his deceased wife once lived. Mr. Charrington shows him a glass paperweight with a piece of coral inside, which Winston buys. 
and a print of an old church in an upstairs bedroom. Winston notices that the bedroom has no telescreens, and Charrington then teaches Winston a few lines of an old nursery rhyme, Oranges and Lemons. Because he suspects that life has grown worse under the party rule, Winston is fascinated by Mr. Charrington and the possessions from the past. The paperweight is a beautiful relic from a more civilized age. Winston leaves, planning a return in a month's time to buy the print, learn the rest of the nursery rhyme, and possibly arrange to rent the bedroom. He sees a dark-haired girl. The one coming towards him is the one that he saw earlier. Convinced that the girl is spying on him, Winston considers smashing her skull with a cobblestone. Full of dead, he hurries home, drinks some gin, and opens the diary, but cannot stop thinking of what will happen to him when he's inevitably arrested. 1984 is, I believe, a quite terrifying masterpiece. So terrifying, in fact, I don't think I should like to read another like it. You once claimed that you have an ability to face unpleasant facts. Is that what you've demonstrated in 1984 by drawing an accurate portrait of the future? I think that allowing for the book being, after all, a parody, something like 1984 could actually happen. This is the direction the world is going in at the present time. In our world, there will be no emotions except fear, rage, triumph, and self-abasement. The sex instinct will be eradicated. We shall abolish the orgasm. There will be no loyalty except loyalty to the party. If you want a picture of the future, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. The moral to be drawn from this dangerous nightmare situation is a simple one. Don't let it happen. It depends on you. Oh.